You are listening to the Ivy Podcast. Learn from the thought leaders in areas of strategy, innovation, negotiation, and all things leadership. We interview the Ivy League, Fortune 100, and top startups. Now, here's your host, John Karsibayev. On this episode, I welcome Dan Hilfrich, who's a chairman and chief executive officer of Deloitte Consulting. As its CEO, he leads more than 50,000 professionals who help clients solve their most complex business issues and move forward with confidence across areas of technology modernization and innovation, human capital, strategy and analytics, customer experience, and enterprise operations. Dan is also a member of the U.S. Executive and Management Committees. In his more than 20 years with Deloitte, Dan has led large customer-centric transformations for both public and private sector clients. In addition, he writes and speaks regularly on topics such as purpose-driven leadership, elevating citizen and customer experience, and the future of work. Please welcome Dan Helfrich. I'm Dan Helfrich, the CEO of Deloitte Consulting. Awesome. Thank you, Dan. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the Ivy Podcast. Um, I'd like, before we begin, talk about, you know, the work and all of that stuff. want to cover some fun fun topics uh i understand you do soccer match commentating uh as your hobby can you tell us a little bit more about that how did you get into that and how is that helping you in your professional life yeah sure i probably am in a category of one of being a ceo and a sports play-by-play guy on the side so at least at least i have that distinction going for me <laughs> uh, i was like a lot of uh kids i dreamed of being a sports journalist, either written or uh, on the air. I actually had the opportunity to do it for a career coming out of school and against the advice of many of my friends and and mentors said, I think I'd rather do this consulting thing to start. (laughs) And, uh, but I kept um, the passion for broadcasting and Uh, I played soccer uh, at Georgetown University, um, continued to live in D.C., and in the early 2000s when sort of broadcasting college uh, non-revenue sports like soccer became a thing, Mm -hmm. uh, Georgetown made available the opportunity for me to broadcast, and I took it, and for the last 16 years, I've broadcast uh, every home game of Georgetown, and it culminated last year with Georgetown uh, winning the national championship for Division One, which was an incredible moment, the first time in the school's history that we won. And so look, in 16 years, what does that mean? It means that there were September Wednesdays when someone would say, hey, Dan, I have a really important meeting, mm-hmm. and I had to have the confidence to say, I can't go because I'm broadcasting. And that didn't matter who, how senior the person was that was asking for that meeting. Uh, it, it was important to me that I walk the talk of having a balanced life. And like I tell all my employees and teammates, and so I've been doing it for 16 years. Just John, the, the final thing to your question about, is there any relationship between broadcasting and my it's sort of my day job. The answer is absolutely. And to do play-by-play, you you have to prepare and you have to, you know, be steeped in rosters and statistics and have a vision of how things might go. But the reality is things 
things never go the way that you anticipate. Right. And you're calling a live game. And so often I think people in the workplace struggle to react in real time because they're thinking so much about what they want to say next and they have this vision of what they prepared for and so often that isn't the reality. And so being able to be articulate in the moment to listen and observe and decide when to interject those skills, which make you a great broadcaster also apply really well to, to my day job. Corporate, I would imagine, I would imagine. And that's, you know, that's a first, uh, and <laughs> can, can we, can we just get a glimpse of when somebody scores? How do you announce that? There is, there is no, standard uh there's no standard goal call what i can tell you though is that the more exciting the moment the more high-pitched and squeaky and sort of pre-adolescent my voice sounds <laughs> when georgetown scored a goal to essentially book their trip to the final four this past uh, uh november my voice reached octaves it hasn't reached since uh, since the 80s. <laughs> I love that. That's exciting. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. Appreciate it. Um, you've mentioned a little bit around work-life balance and how you, you know, you took that serious and you were very protective of that, especially, you know, not only as a hobby, but something that you've committed to. I'm curious to talk a little bit further about that. These days, there's so many, you know, topics and conversations around, you know, being remote, the, the Zoom fatigue almost became a, a term on its own. I'm curious from your standpoint as, as an executive, um, productivity hacks, like what helps you stay productive um, through these times, especially any, anything specific that you, that you employ on daily basis that really helps in terms of that consistency? Um, I, I make sure I am never more than three hours without a defined break in my schedule. I make sure that one-on-one -on -one meetings with people that I already have a relationship with are done via phone. Um, and many of those, like I had two this morning, are done via phone while I'm walking. So I get a chance to be, um, to be outside. And then... You know, I, I believe it's important that I role model to my team, you know, that I'm doing those things. So part of it is I don't hide that. Right. I'm talking to all 50 plus thousand, you know, members of my team about, about this. And we created, you know, a very simple equation that we talk about all the time, which is working from home does not equal always working. Mm -hmm. And when I observe either myself uh, or um, teammates, who are in this rut and rhythm that frankly is unsustainable, we bring that equation back to the fore and say, remember, working from home does not equal always working. And that tends to help people reset their priorities. What I think any business executive needs to do is set a tone that the wellness of your employees is more important than the wellness of your organization. Mm -hmm. And that's never been more important than in a time like this. I love that. That's a, you know, that's a great analogy in terms of really focusing that and walking the walk at the end of the day starts at the top, you know, how, how, how you treat this whole 
work from home situation. And I think people will come to you and, you know, they emulate the same behaviors as well. So that's very exciting. Very good tips. I really like the whole concept of really, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in front of the video camera, you know, eight hours of the day. It's, you know, just not physically possible. So that's exciting. Um, the other topic that I wanted to briefly touch upon with you is around innovation. Because around, you know, especially these times with so many companies going through, you know, tough times like furloughs, the layoffs and so forth, it's, it's almost like the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's very hard to focus on some of aspects of the higher levels of the pyramid where you're mostly focusing on, you know, the safety and the personal needs to begin with. So for you, when it comes to innovation, um, what strategies or methodologies do you employ that? consistently help you come up with innovative ways to solve problems and also kind of motivate and inspire folks that are on your team or your, within your organization uh, to really kind of take that innovative approach, so to say. I'd say the most important thing, John, is the way we think about where is the source of the ideas. And it's funny, as I spend time with our clients, as I observe other organizations, so often you got a senior executive team talking to one another about wanting to be innovative and hey, we need new ideas for X, Y, and Z. And guess what? Um, if those ideas don't exist right now, um, it's because those executives haven't figured it out yet. So going to the same people and saying, hey, be innovative, I think is a fool's errand. So what we're focused on is how do I engage the entirety of the team and how do I create channels and mechanisms that the person who's 18 months into their Deloitte career but actually is looking at a situation in a very different way feels confident enough to say there's actually a much better way we can do this mm -hmm. and actually give them the channels to to do that and so we do crowdsourcing, we do um, innovation challenges, but in general, the culture we're trying to create is that the best ideas often come from, quote unquote, the field where the action is, not from the highest paid people sitting in an executive conference room. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's very interesting. And absolutely, it's a lot of times we hear, you know, I need ideas. I need ideas to come up, you know, for, for whatever, the new product that I'm trying to launch or a new service line. But at the end of the day, like you said, if those ideas don't necessarily have already been, you know, kind of presented, uh, it's most likely not really the case. So that's, you know, I could definitely relate to that. Um, to, to shift topics a little bit when it comes to, you know, as an executive, Hiring and finding the best people is, you know, almost a 24-7 job. It's, it's always on your mind. It's always, you know, you're constantly recruiting. Um, and from your standpoint, um, for the candidates that get to your level of interview with you, I'm just curious, can you give us a glimpse of what does the interview process look like when, you know, candidates interview with you? Do you get creative with your interviews or do you keep them pretty standard? And more importantly, I'm curious to see what exactly do you, what do you look for in some of the responses that when you talk to somebody? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take that a couple ways. First of all, um, I let my team, I empower my team 
to find the people they think are the right people for our organization. And I, when I'm interviewing someone, I will very rarely hear something or try to push or probe on something to overturn the, the instincts of my team because I want to empower the team and they've been closest to the, you know, they've been closest to the action. Mm-hmm. So the conversations I end up having with candidates are definitely not standard because I'm not asking them to go through their resume. I'm asking them like what brings them joy. Mm-hmm. I'm asking them what they've disliked about prior things they've done. I ask them what they're scared about when they think about making a jump from where they are today to Deloitte. I ask them those kinds of questions um, so that I can, more than anything, understand their motivations. And frankly, when they show up on day one with our team, that I'm in a position to, to help them navigate to success. Now, if you zoom out and say broader in Deloitte Consulting, what are we looking for uh, recruiting-wise and, and interviewing-wise, the, the first thing we're looking for is diversity. Mm-hmm. So I want to build the most diverse team I can. And we look at diversity from dozens of angles. So I want a diverse team in ways you can see visibly in uh, gender and race and age and you know, those dimensions. But I want real diversity in people's um, education and skill background. I want designers, I want nurses, I want doctors, I want um, computer programmers, I want engineers, I want philosophers. Hmm. I want a team that has all those people in it. Because at the end of the day, what, what we're being asked to do is, is help clients imagine solutions to new markets or turn their company or organization around. And all those problems have so much texture to them that you require diversity to solve those. And so that's really what we're focused on is building the most diverse team and knitting it together. And then finally, um, at Deloitte, we um, chew up arrogance every day. And so um, we're trying to probe in any interview to find signs of arrogance because you will not survive at our firm in our culture, no matter how talented you are, if you view yourself as the center of the universe. And so we try to find ways to identify those folks because invariably, if we don't do that in the recruiting process, Uh we have a nightmare on our hands um, once they show up. Very interesting. Have, have you, do you have any other examples of kind of that red flag of that particular arrogance that you may pick up through the conversation that makes you think, oh, maybe that's probably not the right fit for the, for the culture of our organization? Um, people that articulate the future in terms of things that they personally want to achieve like mm. i'm coming mm. to you and in two years i'm going to be in x position uh okay that's one red flag another one would be 
you're talking to someone about, tell me about some interesting situation in your past where you were, you know, helping a client or a customer overcome a challenge. Mm-hmm. And the pronoun I mm-hmm. is used to a nine to one ratio to the pronoun we or the team. That's another red flag. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting um, and very good examples from, from that standpoint. Uh, you mentioned philosophers. Do you, you actually have somebody with a philosopher background on, on your teams? Have you encountered that? Yeah, a- absolutely. If you, if, you, if you look at the undergraduate or graduate educations of our folks, you would be amazed by the diversity. We have philosophers. We have um, cultural anthropologists. We have wow. a wide variety of super interesting people. A lot of people have this vision of uh, management consulting firms and system integration firms as being, you know, you got a bunch of MBAs and then a bunch of engineers. Right. We have some MBAs and we have some engineers, but we have a lot of super interesting people, you know, alongside. Healthcare is a great example. You know, healthcare is, you know, one of the most important industries, the most important topics for us as a society. Well, if we're trying to help um, healthcare companies or government agencies that regulate healthcare companies think about their future. Boy, isn't it important that we have pharmacists and nurses and clinicians and um, MDs? We we need all those types of folks, mm-hmm. and we can knit those together with our traditional MBAs and our engineers and our technologists. And it's bringing that sort of diverse skill set together is where the magic happens. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. And prior to me joining the smaller organization where I'm at right now, ProSource IT, we mostly focus on very niche advanced skill set uh, IT staffing. Uh, I spent some time on, you know, in corporate and mostly in healthcare IT. And we had some engagements and initiatives with, uh, with the big four consulting organizations. And, you know, I've encountered various backgrounds and from consultant standpoint and i was just amazed at kind of breaking that that stereotype of a typical consultant uh people coming from very diverse backgrounds so i can definitely relate to what you're talking about not only the philosopher side but you know just in general because you need to have that kind of diversity in terms of being able to come up with various ways to solve a problem yeah, exactly. Exactly, and heck, we even hire sports commentators. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> we have that going for us. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> that's too funny. But in 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 general, you know, for the big four to attract talent is, I'm sure, that's not an issue. But from your standpoint, what are the hardest skills or most in demand skill set that are the you know the most challenging ones for you guys to find these days? Is there anything that typically stands out through, you know, the current periods that you guys are looking for? And it's like, wow, it's, it's definitely a challenge to find that type of yeah. problem. Yes. And, and generally, those are skills where the technology is moving faster mm-hmm. than the sort of education system and the learning training system. And so right now, uh, you know, people with, that are cloud native developers, people who have um, certain certifications in artificial intelligence, um, people that are full stack developers, like the world 
has decided to move in certain directions enabled by technology faster than the systems of education and training can create qualified and trained people mm -hmm. to service that ambition. And so that's where you have uh, quote unquote wars for talent that are the most intense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can definitely relate to that as we partner with a lot of organizations of various size, you know, finding that right IT talent and, you know, the domains that you had mentioned from advanced technology perspective, like machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, those concepts, you know, they've existed for a long time, but at the same time, currently they're reinventing, for example, you know, IT or software engineering industries as a whole. Um, what are your thoughts on adopting such technologies? Because right now those are sexy trends. You know, they're very key buzzwords that a lot of we hear in the media, a lot of people talk about that. But when it comes to the actual practical implementation, the leverage of such technologies is a different story. Curious to get your take on, you know, your recommendation when it comes to that. Um, the key is actually being able to ascertain what is a buzzword and what isn't. And cloud is not a buzzword. Mm -hmm. Cloud is the transformative way to um, manage your operations in a flexible, cost-effective, customer-centric way. If you are not um, migrating large parts of your organization to the cloud, you will be left behind from a competitive um, you know, standpoint. So it's, we have to be careful because sometimes people put all sort of emerging technology words in the same category and call them buzzwords and they aren't. Is blockchain a buzzword? No. Blockchain's not a buzzword either. Blockchain has real practical um, ways to help, uh, you know, secure digital transactions. That being said, it, the, the use cases for blockchain are still sorting themselves out. And so I'd be more cautious about how I um, test and uh, sort of pilot uses of blockchain versus the way I would look at, at, at cloud. Um, and then if you want to talk about artificial intelligence and you know, machine learning, um, the reality is the quality of um, the quality and cost effectiveness of the algorithms and underlying um, assets in uh, machine learning technology and in AI in general are improving exponentially every year. And again, if you're not if you're not finding ways to change the way you do your own work inside your organization and change the way you interface with customers to use AI to provide a more to automated customer friendly experience, then you're falling behind. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and to take that a little bit further, I recently read a study for, I think it was either from McKinsey or a publication by Forbes that approximately, I think it was close to 150 million professionals in US have either left the stable corporate jobs for independent consulting uh, and knowledge intensive industries such as you know advanced information technology and um, amongst the fastest growing segments of you know that gig economy that we we hear about you know a lot these days 
How do you see this trend affect, you know, the current uh, workforce um, in general? Yeah, it's, um, I don't believe the gig economy is a trend. Mm -hmm. I do believe that there are elements of um, flexibility and choose your own adventure um, aspects of gig working that appeal to um, uh, certain portions of our population. And I think that will continue to be the case. I also think that there is uh, a certain portion of the population that the idea of being on a team, a team that has a mission and a purpose and a destination it's trying to achieve um, is very attractive. And so I, I think we need to prepare for a world in which the gig economy sits side by side with traditional organizations with traditional benefits. And the key is going to be for um, the traditional organizations to figure out how they utilize the gig economy versus fighting against it. So let's take our, you know, you know, our business. Do I think five years from now, we will have a materially higher percentage of our work coming from people who aren't quote on our balance sheet, I do. We need to prepare for that, you know, for that moment. Do I think we're going to be an organization that is a, you know, very small enterprise that manages a ton of freelancers? No, because the ethos of team and the ability to um, create a team and grow a team and help people envision a career path those are still really important things. And so we'll focus on how we get the balance right. Right, right, absolutely. Um, and uh, through, through current times with a lot of organizations dealing with a lot of, you know, instability, and a lot of, you know, not really lack of clarity, so to say, with what to do next as an organization. And I would imagine quite a few executives, you know, want to discuss those types of, you know, topics with you, especially with some of your guys' clients. I'm curious to, I guess, to the extent that you can share, of course, uh, what are some of the kind of recommendations that you provide to such executives as they prepare for that, that next unknown uh, period or whatever that, that next period is looking like? Do we go back to, you know, the normal? Do we, is this the new normal? Um, just curious to get your take on kind of those types of conversations that you're having with other executives. Yeah, I am having a, I am having a lot of them. Uh, I would tell you that if I if there's a big change in conversations I was having with CEOs in April versus July. Wow. The April conversations were um, defensive conversations. How how do I survive? What's going to happen? Uh, you know, doomsday scenario planning, am I going to be able to, are my teams going to be able to effectively work when they're not in the office? All, like every one of those conversations, I would say the dominant, uh, the dominant feeling was anxiety. Fast forward to July, the dominant feeling is offense and people actually believing that this is a moment that matters and saying, how do I use this moment to win? 
to win competitively with my customers, to win in um, the war for talent, to win from uh, a, a cost a, a cost basis in terms of how I can run my business more efficiently and therefore increase my profitability if I'm a you know if I'm a corporation. So it's been really interesting to see that transition, and that's fun for people like us because I view that as our fundamental purpose in life is helping people who are asking these questions about what offense they can play. Right put those strategies into reality. And so, look, as I tell executives all the time, will there be winners and losers in this moment? You're darn right. And you're already starting to see some of that. But it's not a – those winners and losers are not preordained. And so there are things you can do right now to capitalize on the moment to be one of the winners. Right. That's interesting how the dynamic of that conversation really changed in such a short period of almost like two months, as you mentioned, where initially it was, you know, kind of that defensive strategy. How do I survive? How do I, you know, cope with that versus, you know, two months later to how do I really, you know, take advantage of some of the opportunities that are in front of me and define the, you know, the offensive strategy to, to capitalize on that. So that's very, you know, interesting. Um, then last but not least, two-pronged question. What are you currently reading and what is one book that you always recommend to others and why? Um, I, I just uh, finished The Water Dancer um, uh, by Taishi Coates, uh, which was a really interesting sort of historical fiction look at um, slavery and other um, dimensions of uh, the experience around the time of the Underground Railroad. Super, um, super interesting way to blend history and storytelling uh, together. Uh, certainly recommend it. And I will tell you, I, 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 the reason I got onto it is I heard some of our employees talking about a book club that they are doing on their team. And these are you know, people who I never met before who otherwise, you know, wouldn't be natural for me to run into them. And so sure enough, uh, they were pretty surprised when I clicked into the Zoom on their, you know, Wednesday night book club meeting. And there I was talking about the book with them, which was super fun. Uh, In terms of books that I recommend to people, I'll, I'll give you the three that I've probably most common through the years described. And um, by the way, these are the same three. They're not impacted by the moment we're in right now. The first, so I'll give you a, a biography, a nonfiction, and a fiction. The, the, the nonfiction is Just Mercy, which is Brian Stevenson's book. Um, it was made into a movie, sort of part of it uh, last year, but it's an amazing combination of storytelling and character development of some real folks that encountered um, terrible injustice in the U.S. justice system um, and deep research on underlying and and systemic bias in that system against, um, you know, people who are underrepresented or underprivileged, either by race, by disability, by class. Um, So uh, I can't can't recommend it enough. It is it is eye opening. Uh, in terms of a biography, Unbroken, which my eighth grader just read, uh, which tells the story of a 
U.S. track and field star in World War II and his journey, um, including, you know, facing horrific situations um, in the war and surviving against all odds, incredible story. Um, and then the nonfiction, if you're from a big family like me, I'm the oldest of seven kids. Wow. I have four of my own. There's a book by David James Duncan called The Brothers K. And it's this super interesting set of stories about a somewhat dysfunctional family, but um, incredible character development deals with a lot of the issues that big families deal with. And it's uh, incredibly powerful. So those are the three. Well, that's awesome. And as usual for our listeners, we'll make the authors and titles of these books available in the episode notes. Then last question, the signed soccer ball that's right behind you, uh, is that from one of your teams or is that uh, from the US national team? Just curious what, what the, the story behind it that is. It is, it's the signed ball of the 2019 national champion, Georgetown Hoyas. Wow, that's awesome, that's great. Dan, can't thank you enough for your time. I know it was a short conversation, but very insightful. I learned quite a bit from that. Really appreciate all the insights that you shared with us today. I look forward to staying in touch with you. And thanks so much again. Thanks, John. Keep leading and keep, uh, keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.